0: Fallon, your host for the Fallon Forum, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Uh, Thanks to our local sponsors, Gateway Marketing Cafe, my grocery store, and you can get uh, lunch and supper every day of the week at Takeout. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret, Des Moines' premier location for jazz and cabaret, now doing concerts live and live stream. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right. Later in the program, uh, Jim Benzoni is going to join us. We're going to talk about, well, it just, we're going to talk about how it just seems that uh, that uh, developers and road builders just won't take no for an answer. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. The link to develop link between development and urban sprawl and climate change. We'll also be talking with Steve Horn about geoengineering and what's happening in California on that. And then Kathy Burns will join us, and we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about summer garden. Questions. We'll take your questions, we'll try to give some answers. But first, um, okay, derechos and fires and bears, oh my. You know, it's been quite a year and quite a week in the department of the climate crisis. You know, August 10th of um, this year, just last week, the uh, derecho that went through the Midwest um, will probably go down as one of the strongest uh, in recent history. Uh, possibly the strongest ever. Possibly the worst severe weather event uh, of the year. Although that said, we still have to wait and see what uh, Atlantic hurricane season brings us. Uh, the forecast there is not very encouraging. Uh, already, the earliest named storms of the of the of the season have been broken. Uh, letters J K came before those letters have ever come in hurricane history. And um, yeah, the 2020 hurricane season is likely to be pretty active. Uh, We're just starting to hit the peak. But back to the derecho, uh, which is basically a hurricane in the heartland. One-third of Iowa's corn and soybean crop were either damaged or destroyed last week. That's 10 million acres, and that's a lot of impact for Iowa's farm communities. Of course, also not just the uh, crops, but the infrastructure, damaged, destroyed as well. And, you know, again, obviously it's not just the... uh, The derecho didn't just choose rural Iowa, and again, not just Iowa, it was Dakotas, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio. This thing was 750 miles long, and it wasn't just the rural areas. I mean, of all the towns and cities in Iowa to get hit, Cedar Rapids got hit the hardest. Now, you might remember back in 2008, Cedar Rapids was hit by a devastating flood. Uh, That damaged 14 square miles of the city. It completely submerged downtown, and it displaced um, about 10,000 people. So uh, Cedar Rapids City Manager Jeff Pomerantz said, and I quote, this is a greater impact than we've ever seen in this community. So greater than the flood of 2008. That's how bad this is in the city of Cedar Rapids, again, which is Iowa's second largest city, or was until the derecho. Maybe it'll still be, but um, it's a huge impact, huge impact, and I hope people... Who are able to can help out with the cleanup and restoration area uh, effort. Okay, so yeah, again, here's the question though. What's the climate change link between derechos and, and what's going on in our atmosphere? What, what, what is, is there a climate impact here? Well, now the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's website, that's NOAA, N-O-A-A, uh, someone asked that question. How might climate change affect derecho frequency and distribution? That was the question. And Noah's answer? Quote, nobody knows. End of quote. <laughs> well, they, they said a little more than that. A fairly technical description. Uh, and then they concluded with, quote, one thing is certain. The conditions of maximum derecho frequency would shift polar, polar ward. I guess that's the word, polar ward with global warming. Well, I, I think it's interesting to use the word would when we know we have global warming happening. They still want to treat it speculatively. And part of the problem, of course, is that, um, I mean, I, I generally have a lot of respect for NOAA. But remember, the former director appointed, remember um, who President Trump appointed, Barry Myers? Well, you know, that guy didn't even have a science degree. And he had a, a weather forecasting company that many people thought indicated a severe conflict of interest. So it, got, it gets worse, though, at NOAA. <laughs> because Myers was replaced by Neil Jacobs. And Jacobs, is the, he's the guy who, you might remember this too, he sided with Trump against Noah's own scientists, against the scientist on his own staff. He sided with Trump when the president claimed that Alabama was in the path of Hurricane Dorian. Remember that? Remember the sharpie, the map that Trump drew to make sure that we saw the cone of the hurricane taking out Alabama? Well, there was no science behind that. Noah's own staff said, no, not happening. And this guy that Trump appointed said, "Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna side with Trump on this one." So again, NOAA is questionable, um, but I did find more independent and less biased um, analysis on the derecho from Russ Schumacher. He's the uh, he's with the climate science department at Colorado State University. Now Schumacher uh, wrote about this. Uh, well, he, actually, he wrote this. This may have come before the. Um, 2020 derecho, the uh, August uh, 10th derecho rather, because in June 6th of the same year, two months ago, a huge derecho hit Utah, Colorado, and then on into the Dakotas. Uh, He wrote about that. He said only a few recorded derechos had occurred in the western U.S. prior to June 6th of 2020. On that day, a line of strong thunderstorms developed in eastern Utah and western Colorado in the late morning. Now, this was unusual in itself, as storms in this region tend to be less organized and occur later in the day. The the thunderstorms continued to organize and moved northeastward across the Rocky Mountains. This was even more unusual. derecho-producing lines of storms are driven by a pool of cold air near the ground, which would typically be disrupted by a mountain range as tall as the Rockies. In this case, the line remained organized. All right. That's, um, uh, that's Russ Schumacher, Colorado State University. So in other words, what we saw with last week's derecho, up to 100 mile per hour winds, 40 miles wide, 750 miles long, that was unprecedented, uh, as was the derecho that um, Schumacher was writing about that started in Colorado. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm just wondering here, what could have caused these two unprecedented storms? Well, is it possible that it could have been climate change? You know, I, I feel like I'm the, uh, the uh, church lady from, from Saturday Life Live here. Hmm, what could it be? Somebody like Satan? Or climate change? Anyway, you know, it's, just, uh, it, it's pretty clear that that's happening. And for, for Trump's appointee to Noah to not get it right is, is, um, is disturbing, to say the least. So anyway, this brings me to fire. You know, a heat wave is scorching the uh, southwest of the U.S. and California. There were, there were um, cities in California that saw 110 degrees uh, on their thermometers this past week. And using so much electricity that last Friday night, for the first time in 19 years, the, um, the utility company uh, had to shut down much of the state's power grid for several hours in order to avoid a damaging, you know, overload. So, um, you know, and the National Weather Service, of course, went ahead and issued an excessive heat warning for much of the West Coast. And now what's happening right now, this week, is the Loyalton Fire. That's up in Northern California in Sierra County. Um, It's estimated that over 36,000 acres have burned and that the fire is only 5% contained. Now, there are mandatory evacuations in effect for three counties, now, according to the U.S. Forest Service, uh, the fire's behavior is extreme. On Saturday, um, a tornado warning was issued in Reno, Nevada. And uh, that may have been the first ever, uh, it, it, it was a tornado that created a fire, that, that had fire spinning in it. It's a, you know, you've heard of shark tornadoes, or Sharknado, I guess it's called. Called, I've, I've heard of a mosquito tornado in Siberia. I don't, I don't, I, I'm not sure which, which tornado I fear more Uh, sharks or or mosquitoes, but um, this is fire, fire in a tornado. And it's being referred to as the first ever fire tornado. And meanwhile, on the other end of the state, in Southern California, uh, one report says that mandatory evacuations are in place as a wildfire spread to more than 18,000 acres over the weekend in rural Los Angeles County. It's called Lake Fire And it is blazing about 65 miles north of Los Angeles, near Lake Hughes. Um, And of course, this is during this uh, very dangerous heat wave. It's burned 18,000 acres as of Sunday. And there are more than 4,500 buildings, houses, businesses that are threatened by the fire. And of course, um, it's only 12% contained. So who knows how that's going to go. Oh yeah, and one of the reports on this says there is no known cause. (laughs) Um, Yeah, again, no known cause. How can we not understand that this is a climate impact? Now, maybe if you're looking for the question of whether there was an electrical shortage or a match was thrown or a lightning strike, but come on, the media need to start talking about the fact that these derechos, these hurricanes, these, these, um, these fires on steroids are not are, are, are not yeah the, all those things occur in nature but they don't occur to this extent they don't you don't have fire tornadoes and, and look at the the worst five years in, in US history in the west in terms of uh, fires the worst the worst years 06 07 2012 2015 2017 all very recent and every one of those burned between nine and 10 million acres so that brings me to the bears, yeah. Not only the Chicago Bears, who are, may also be on the extinction list list if the NFL doesn't play this fall, uh, but polar bears. Po- polar bears. Um, the, the 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 discussion is still going on, but they may well be threatened with extinction. Um, yeah, many are starving because of shrinking sea ice. But I thought I thought this story in Arctic Today made a lot of a lot of sense. Made some really good points. You know, the polar bear is important. And people have a huge attachment to polar bears for various reasons. But we have to get, we have to get our, our minds to go beyond the polar bear and understand the entire Arctic region. Not just the other big mammals up there, but the entire region, how important it is and how unique it is and how much of an indicator of the health of the planet uh, the Arctic is. And meanwhile, of course, what's happening, instead of doing more to protect the Arctic and try to minimize damage to polar bears and other life forms, Big Oil, with their biggest pal ever in the White House, um, just this week finalized a plan to open the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil and gas companies. Yep, that's right. The um, Department of the Interior announced that it had completed its required reviews, and that clears the way for the U.S. government to auction off leases in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge uh, to companies that want to come in and drill. Of course, um, you know, they, there's the, they, they've done their research. They know that that land is on, uh, on, on enough oil to fill billions of barrels. You know, so we have, we have our work cut out for us, folks. Um, I, won't, I, will not be, uh, I will not sugarcoat it. Things are getting worse. But as bad as they are in the U.S., as bad as they are here in Iowa right now with so much destruction across our state, um, remember the rest of the world. You know, remember the extreme weather that's affecting all countries, and again, the poor countries and the and minority communities are the ones that get hit the hardest. You know, just looking at last year, Cyclone Idai killed a thousand people in southern Africa. In Australia, worst bushfire season ever, following the hottest year on record. Twenty-five million acres burned. Twenty-eight million people—no, uh, sorry, twenty-eight people killed. Sorry, entire communities. Thousands of homes destroyed, you know, more than a billion native animals killed, you know, and in northern Africa and on the horn of Africa, Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia, um, you know, severe drought in 2011, 2017, 2019, um, 15 million people right now are in danger of hunger. You know, and, and of course, in Bangladesh, uh, deadly floods, landslides, also affecting India and Nepal. But in Bangladesh, one-third of the country was underwater because of exceptionally heavy monsoon rains last year. And in Central America, again, this is part of why we're seeing such a huge amount of immigration from Central America. the What's called the dry cord of Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua. You know, their typical three-month dry season has become a six-month dry season. Most crops are failing, and that's leaving 3.5 million people who rely on farming for their income and their food source. It's leaving those people in need of humanitarian assistance. And uh, many of them are deciding to immigrate north. So I I hope we can um, put the uh, pandemic and all of our other problems in perspective because uh, this climate situation is getting worse. The warnings are becoming more extreme Uh, And they're not just isolated. They're everywhere. We'll be back in a minute, folks. We're going to talk about a very specific situation here in Des Moines that will probably resonate with a lot of you elsewhere in the country. Asphalt addiction. Why developers and road builders won't take no for an answer. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community.
1: It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. At East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, patio seating, curbside pickup, and carry-out. Hawk also serves fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com, that's h-o-q-table.com.
0: Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here. We're broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, Thanks to our local business partners, including Ritual Cafe, Fair Trade Coffee, Fair Trade Tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. That's Ritual Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. Well, I'd like to welcome uh, Jim Benzoni to the program. He's uh, an attorney here in Des Moines. And, you know, this is a problem that seems to affect people all across our our country. Uh, This addiction to asphalt. uh, Developers and road builders just seem to not be able to take no for an answer because uh, 20 years ago, uh, the community overwhelmingly said no to this um, massive uh, highway expansion. And we thought that was a done deal. And now they're back at it. Jim, uh, what's going on with this?
2: Well, they've... uh... Now they've put out a public notice that this highway construction project that was sl- on the table 20 years ago and was killed uh, is now back on the table, and they're proposing to go forward with this. Uh, it's basically interstate project through the inner city.
0: It's called the North South Metro Connector, and it would um, it would it would affect a lot of uh, a lot of constituencies, including a beautiful natural area that. Uh, uh, it has a bike trail in it, it is a good place for uh, bird watching, uh, which also is now home to a very unique uh, Tai Dom village. Uh, and it would also decimate uh, a largely black and Latino community. I'm baffled as to why uh, city planners think this is a good idea after it was put to rest 20 years ago.
2: Well, I think it's pretty clear. The reason remains the same. They want to develop the north uh, end of the county, which is still yeah. largely rural. Uh, by the, There's a lake up north of, of Des Moines called Sailorville Lake, and it's a very nice area, and it would bring in a lot of money. And there's really, really nothing to connect. <laughs> they call it a north-south connector, but there's nothing north right now to connect it to and that's the point they want to make some big nice suburbs up north
0: right and so again this would this would justify development in those rural areas north of the city uh, but it would also be some big bucks for the uh, road building road building industry i mean i can't imagine what this would cost do you have any idea what the cost would be
2: no idea. It had to be in the hundreds of millions of dollars.
0: Absolutely. I mean, yeah.
2: interstate connector, interstate quality.
0: So what? What has changed from 20? I mean, if anything, we're you know, I mean, we're even we're we're further down the road toward climate change, and it's evident that if we keep building um, more and more, you know, more and more construction projects, uh, you know, less natural areas to accommodate flooding. In this case. Yeah, we're you know we're just making the problem even worse. So, so twenty years later, what what has what changed that is how, that has encouraged the city officials and county officials to want to go ahead with this?
2: Well, I I don't think that change is the correct word here. It's money, the the development of the north side, and it's important to remember this is not really a north south connector. This is a north to downtown connector. And that it's not going to go through the city; it's going to go to downtown. And uh, the the point is, they want to develop that north. It's largely rural, very beautiful area uh, by Polk City and Sailorville Lake. And this is how they plan to do it. They it's, it puts money in developers' pockets, and it's a lot of money.
0: So, which uh, which public officials are backing it? Because uh, eventually, it's going to take. It's going to take public approval for this to happen, just like it took public disapproval for it to be sidelined 20 years ago. Who wants it?
2: Well, I that I haven't picked out yet. The, the, our local supervisor, I think, is probably caught in the middle. Uh, but I think it's more the big money interests are driving this. And part of it is that Des Moines is... it's. A growing small city, and it would like to be more than that. I really think
0: so. Yeah, it some some be. some would like to be more than that. Some of us are pretty content uh, with a mid-sized city. <laughs> uh, you know, you 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 attract a lot of um uh, a lot of additional problems when you start expanding your infrastructure further and further out. You've got all that to maintain. You lose your you lose your connection to. Um, you know rural areas. Uh, I mean, I, I know there's a lot of people like me who like to hop on their bike, and you know it takes a little bit of a little bit of a cycle, but in not too much time, you're out in the countryside. Um, if that keeps changing, that's an amenity that would be lost. But again, I think uh, one thing I saw in the letter you sent to uh, public officials was concerned about climate change, and uh, I thought right. that was a really um, really important point.
2: Yeah, well, because. The further people move out from where they work, the larger their carbon footprint is going to be. And uh, especially here in central Iowa, we really don't have much in the way of public transportation. And so this would all be commuter traffic. Plus, suburban living uh, with larger houses is definitely, you know, much more of a carbon footprint. And this would just encourage
0: that. Right. So, uh, I mean, this is fairly recent news. I mean, I, I did not know about this until I saw your letter. Uh, are there other individuals, other other community leaders, other organizations that are uh, uh, are opposing it?
2: Well, there are a few that we we had a we worked together 20 years ago, and those people are starting to come to light now. But. Uh, Because this is such a new, I mean, it was just put on the agenda. I mean, I just saw it, and it's already up for, apparently, for public comment and vote. Uh, So I have not seen a lot of reaction to it. And I will just quickly say uh, part of the problem is it goes right through the heart of our minority neighborhood. And there was a lot of other issues on the plate
0: there right now. Right. Well, and yeah, uh, but that's, um, that's just continuing the whole history of exploitation of uh, marginalized communities. And I, I would say especially uh, uh, America's black and, and native communities. Uh, they have been uh, hit harder than any, 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 any subset of, uh, of, of, uh, of America. And um, I, I would assume that the folks living in, in, in those communities and the organizations representing them would probably also not be real happy about what's being proposed.
2: Oh, no, absolutely not. Uh, CCI would actually be directly. thats Community for, uh, co- what's it, the Community Improvement, I believe, Council for Community Improvement. Citizens for right, Community uh,
0: Improvement, yeah.
2: C- okay, yeah, they're right on this route, and they'd be knocked out. And the, the uh, important thing to understand when a rob goes through the inner city, it's mainly landlords, and they make a lot of money on this. But what it does is it just decimates an inner city uh, minority neighborhood because it's separate. It just cuts the neighborhood in two. Just, and if you ever saw 235, what it did to the Grand Avenue neighborhood, uh, you can appreciate it. It just creates a whole separate—it's right. uh, it, it, like having the, the center of your family taken out.
0: right. So at some point, again, it's no surprise to me that developers and road builders want this project. If their focus is on making money, that's what they want to do. But what surprises me is that there are public officials that, um, even, even though it's pretty clearly not in the public interest, there are public officials that might be going along with them. I mean, right now you said this is up for a vote soon. Is that uh, the Metropolitan Planning Organization or someone yeah, else? Yeah. Okay. Yeah,
2: it's before MAP first. Yeah.
0: So and after. I, go- I think
2: I I want to yeah MAP first, but but something yeah Metropolitan uh, Planning Organization, but but I want to put in one other thing too, that this land going through uh, where it's proposed was actually by the Army Corps of Engineers in perpetuity to the city of Des Moines in a settlement of another environmental lawsuit for the taking of public land at Legis State Park. And the the Army Corps of Engineers specifically said, and this is a quote, that this is a unique recreational area extending into the center of a metropolitan area. And what it is is the floodplains... Of the Des Moines River, come right down, you know a lot of it's been kind of crusted over, but come right down almost to downtown Des Moines, and there's two bike trails very well used on either side of the river, and putting a four lane interstate highway through this, well you would there they wouldn't be wetlands anymore. Right. And, and that's really important to understand.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting point. So so I, I you know when you say that, I would think, well, maybe the Army Corps of Engineers would also be opposed to it. Uh, well, but I, I guess that depends partly on who is in the White House.
2: Yes, it will depend huge on who's in the White House. The Army Corps of Engineers does have a uh, a hand in this, and we contacted him before. But their hand is mainly in river management. They control the flood, you know, management uh, sector of the Des Moines River. But they, what they did is they actually deeded this land over, and the county uh, is the one that operates it. You know, it's deeded to the city, but the county uh, park division actually oversees it. Right. But it's well used by mountain bikers and by people that you know buy. A, regular bikers and just people out
0: hiking. And by the Thai Dom community, uh, the, the Thai Dom community was very important to, uh, well, to a lot of people, but to Governor Robert, Robert Ray, Republican governor from the 1970s and 80s, who, uh, who um, you know, helped resettle a lot of uh, refugees from Southeast Asia. And uh, they, um, they, and I don't know what the formal arrangement is, but they've got a beautiful archway when you go to enter this area. They've got um, a building. I'm not sure, quite sure what the building's used for, but uh, they also have um, some really uh, fantastic events there, uh, including an annual celebration. I don't know whether it's happening this year because of uh, COVID-19, but I remember one night I was out for a bike ride with two friends, and we were coming down that trail on the uh, uh, west side of the uh, Des Moines River, and we didn't know about the uh, festival. We just happened upon it, and it was just beautiful. Uh uh, little little uh, boats out on the on the uh, pond. There used to be a gravel pit, I believe, and um, and, and people playing that that uh, that Vietnamese volleyball game. That is um, so much more right, skillful right. than volleyball. <laughs> it's like whoa, they yeah, do they yeah. do with their feet, yeah. but we can barely do with our hands. Uh, and then just right. music, oh, and amazing. and it was just an amazing right. experience. And it's just one reason why Des Moines is so culturally culturally vibrant. And to come in and destroy that. Along along with all the other impacts, all the no other negative impacts would be unconscionable. So I hope um, yes. I hope I hope public officials who represent us, not developers, not road builders, will begin to pay attention to all the ways in which this could be a, a bad idea.
2: Yeah, well, there's so much, and I, I have to tell you before we go that I just found another letter I addressed specifically to my supervisor in response to hers, it's even longer than I may put into a public record. Right. It's pretty direct, but there's, there's a lot of pieces here. Uh, there's Indian burial mounds. This is sacred land because of its location. It's on a bluff. that overlooks a bend in the river. And, uh, and I've talked to the, uh, the state archeologist's office and also the person who actually discovered all this, uh, about this and this land is sacred to the native americans and so that's another whole mm. separate piece of this is this is sacred land the Taidam have uh, actually purchased and kept very beautiful a large segment of it but if we put an interstate highway through here mm. we're going to trash a lot of mm. you know a lot of what's left
0: well, let's see what happens. I hope more people will pay attention to the conversation, and I thank you very much, Jim, for helping to kick it off. Uh, folks, we've been talking right. with Jim Benzoni. He's a lawyer here in Des Moines, and he's been active in opposing the expansion of the uh, North so-called North-South Connector for over 20 years. Uh, Jim, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. When we come back, folks, uh, Steve Horn is going to join us. Uh, we're going to talk about geoengineering and the uh, government of California's response to geoengineering and why big oil actually kind of likes geoengineering. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas-Finley. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines.
1: At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, Well, if you've got an elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Kim Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766.
0: Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon, your host here as we broadcast from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Also, the epicenter, not quite the epicenter, but close to the epicenter of that August 10th derecho, still recovering, and that recovery will will be a long time coming. Hey, I'd like to take a second to thank our nonprofit uh, partners in this programming. Uh, Thanks to Bold Iowa, fighting climate change and the Dakota Access Pipeline since 2015. Check out boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, where you can learn how to turn your yard into dinner. Check out birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. Okay, joining us now on the program, uh, Steve Horn. Um, well, we're going to talk about why big oil supports geoengineering. But uh, first, um, Steve, a little background, if you will, just in case some of our audience members aren't familiar with geoengineering relevant to climate change. Uh, can you give us a little bit of a little bit of a primer on that?
3: sure yeah well thanks for having me and i think that the short answer on what is geoengineering is it's um it's a several methods but it's a way to uh reverse engineer the climate crisis um through different technologies um and it's uh they're they're all none of them are like at scale right now so it's all either scientific experiments or uh sort of more of a thought than a reality right now but there's there's ways to do it for example where you would bury carbon under the ground do it through uh regenerative agriculture is one way or there are ways that uh, something called direct air capture where you would uh, vacuum in carbon dioxide as uh so ambient a gi- air.
0: A giant vacuum cleaner that sucks it out of the air
3: yeah it's it's a very um right yeah these are they're, they're, there's not it's not global by any means but there even that one has uh some facilities. And then there's the one that's a subject of, there's others too, but like the, I think one of the, the moonshot ones um, and, and literally getting into the atmosphere, and the stratosphere is something called solar geoengineering. It's uh, basically a way to block the sun so that uh, the um, greenhouse effect can actually take place and it involves yeah. spraying Massive amounts of aerosols into the atmosphere to create a cloud covering over uh, yeah. the sun and that would have to take place, basically, into perpetuity once now, it happens. It's not be, just like a one-time thing.
0: Be, before before we, uh, I want to talk more about that. But the uh, the one the one geoengineering uh, feature that some of us here in Iowa are more familiar with, thanks to Andrew Yang, uh, uh, Andrew Yang. Well, <laughs> uh, he answered. This is his response to a question that. Uh, that some of us asked of him back in February of last year, no, the year before, February of the year before, um, he, he he said his his approach to climate change was, and he had some reasonable things. And he said we've also got to um, um, pack dirt around glaciers to slow them down from melting, and um, we saw all sorts of problems with that. <laughs> so, but, any, but anyway, what you're describing sounds even more problematic. It's not it's not like a one time fix. It's continually spraying chemicals, basically, into the atmosphere to try to block the sun's rays. Do I have that right?
3: That's correct, yeah, um, and, and um, it, it hasn't, I mean, something of that magnitude, obviously, if it happened, you would heard of it, so it's not, it's been a, one of these things that was sort of on the margins of the climate discussion for quite a long time in the United States. Like I would say, I've been climate journalist for about a decade. It's definitely been there at least since then. It, it predated me, but it was on was not something that was huge in academia or anything but I've, I've noticed there's a been an uptick in interest in this within dominant more, more predominant institutions in in more recent years especially um you know the past five years or and so you, and, five you, years
0: and so. you wrote about this in the real news network recently relevant to california
3: exactly yeah so um yeah the epicenter of this new um, research and when i say research they're not doing field research they're not actually shooting this stuff in the atmosphere but they're definitely considering the prospect of doing it the epicenter of this research is at harvard and what happened is uh that the the program got off the ground at harvard there's been um, funding from bill gates and some other sources and so it's become like the place where these discussions are happening over it's, it's sort of it's it's pigeonholed in two ways one is could it work? And then two, if it could work, what does quote-unquote governance look like of it? Because it can't just be the way that they position this. It can't just be that we roll it out there without taking the public into account and speaking to the public. So there has to be some democracy, I guess, in, in, in how it's applied. But there's there's huge concerns that this whole thing around governance, which is what, get, this is what gets California involved. So the, the Harvard program, which is called ScopeX, or strategic-controlled uh, <laughs> predation experiment. I said that badly, but yeah, scopex that, is the...
0: Even, even if you said it right, it would have sounded bad.
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they have um, a governance initiative that was rolled out last year, 2019, and the chair of it, this gets into the California side, is... The head of the Strategic Growth Council, the executive director of that, which is an agency that, that deals with um, growth and climate change in California. Uh, the, she's the, the chair of her name is Louise Bedsworth. And so, what happened is uh, she was put on all the materials, and California's logo was put on it. And there are groups that are, there's, I guess, a lot of groups around the world who are concerned about this, but there's groups in the United States as well who are concerned. And they're just kind of—they see it as California endorsing moving forward on this without really having a real discourse. Yeah. Well, what about, about the guy? Go-
0: what about the governor? Governor Newsom—he uh, seems like a reasonable sort. He,
3: yeah. So Newsom has not weighed in on this, and um, but what what I saw and what the reason why I know. Maybe a little bit more about this than the original I did an open records request for my reporting, and there's at least knowledge um, of this, at least this is what Louise Bedsworth said, who's the head of the strategic growth council, is that she had conveyed it to his communications director that she was involved, but it wasn't really clear that it had moved really well through the chain of command, if you will, because, for example, uh, Newsom's top climate aide was not really too clear on what was going on. You could see in the emails. Her name is Kate Gordon, and she, she actually is a longtime confidant of Tom Steyer. So she was kind of asking, like, how did you get involved in this? What's the deal? So I, it's not really 100 percent clear how how much there was endorsement at the highest levels of this or if it was. A legacy thing. It seemed like what she was saying in the emails that I got was, this was something that the former governor was pretty interested in, which is Jerry Brown, and that's how she got originally involved in this circle. But it's still, um, yeah, it's not super clear to me if this is something that the the Newsom administration is very much behind. But I will say, she did step down, so that the end result is all this controversy arises, she ends up resigning as the chair, but she has not resigned from the the advisory board itself. So she's still involved in this Harvard so, thing as so, a member.
0: So apparently Bill Gates likes this idea, um, but uh, where does where does let's use a generic term, big oil? Where does big oil stand on it? My my impression yeah. is if uh, if uh, this were to somehow gain approval and somehow be implemented, uh, it would just give them license to continue to drill and and uh, exploit oil and keep uh, going on with business as usual and make uh, incredible amounts of money.
3: That's the hugest concern around it is that that's the case, and that, and that it's a legitimate concern because <clears throat> the oil industry um, is just in this example. It's not the only example where they're they're financing geoengineering, but in this example, they're financing the. Um, <clears throat> there's a for-profit wing of this whole Harvard thing, uh, the ScopeX, and it's called carbon engineering. So the the one of the co-directors of Scopex, his name is David Keith. Um, if you Google his name in geoengineering, he's one of the, probably the top minds behind geoengineering in the, in the country, if not in the whole world. And he has a for-profit business called Carbon Engineering. And Bill Gates is one of the financiers of that as well, but it's not just Bill Gates. In this case, it's also huge oil companies such as Chevron, um, I believe, Ex- uh no, Accidental, not Exxon. Accidental. Accidental and Chevron are the two major yeah. ones who now, are putting, so they're, they're literally fund financing this thing, and it does lead to the questions of are these companies just looking for, to looking at this as a way they can keep doing yeah. what they're doing in the so business I, for decades. And I,
0: I, I don't doubt for a moment that there are self-interest, uh, those who have self-interest in this, um, this idea. But what about, uh, you know, the, the general public? uh. I mean, I'd like, to, I'd like to believe that most people who don't have a financial stake in this are well-intentioned. Um, they, 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 they want to do what's best for themselves, their family, their community, um, ideally the planet. Um, but I think also there's, there's this, maybe this is more prevalent in America than other parts of the world. I'm not sure. Maybe it's a human condition, but I think people tend to uh, want to believe that there is a technological fix to our problems, uh, whether it comes to uh, a disease, um, a, you know, a, a flawed construction technique that can be fixed with a new approach to how you build, or, or, or a better way to design a car. Uh, people want to believe that through technology we can fix our problems. So I'm guessing there might be a segment of the population, as well-intentioned as they might be, that would buy the idea that geoengineering is a viable uh, solution, potentially, to the climate crisis.
3: Yeah, you raise a good question. I think that that, that gets to the core of this issue is that the groups that are concerned about this whole thing is they think that this this whole advisory committee and the whole notion of what's called governance they they think that it's that it's more of a, more or less a PR exercise where they already know they they do say that they're they're considering a range of outcomes and it, it'll they want public in, engagement in it, but I think that there's some issues when it's the the proponent of the project um, with all the money behind it being the one that gets to kind of frame the whole debate and they could frame it in a way that, as you said, it, it sort of seems like it's a inevitable techno fix that we need to do. I think that's the concern. So it's really been so controversial that there is a whole coalition. There's uh, 73 different groups who had signed on called Hands Off Mother Earth." Earthness groups from all over the world, climate justice groups, and they they said that they don't even – want to engage in this whole uh, governance process at all they called it a quote-unquote charade they called it a quote-unquote mockery of participation so i think that yeah their concern is exactly as you said is that they're gonna go ahead and sell this as a techno fix without really um, really laying out the, the the big concerns and other alternatives beyond this extreme measure of spraying aerosols in the so atmosphere
0: what, of these chemicals. So what about the United Nations? Does the UN have a stand on this, on geoengineering?
3: The UN has, um, yeah, through the uh, Committee on Biological Diversity, um, is opposed to it right now. The National Academies of Sciences is, is also has its own governance sort of uh, initiative where they're openly considering and having meetings and stuff, which has been going on the past few years. And that gets into the whole thing where that would have been unthinkable that the National Academies of Sciences was considering something like this maybe a decade ago, but it shows how far, well, first of all, it shows how bad the climate crisis has gotten and how right. severe it's gotten in the past right, right. years, but also, yeah, it shows how far this this particular technique has come and um, being mainstreamed so, in the past so one several la- years.
0: One last question before we uh, got to go to a break. Uh, are there other countries where this, conversation is happening where anybody in any any other country is taking geoengineering seriously.
3: I still think that the United States is the epicenter of this discussion that that I've seen. I know that it, there's allies of this Harvard kind of program that they might do some research or discussions with, but I, I still think that um, you know, looking at the focal point of the National Academies of the Sciences and looking at Harvard, that's where the discussion is is being had. And that, that should be, that should raise some alarm bells already people, given the United States disproportionate role in, you know, creating the, the climate kind of contributing to the climate crisis, if you will, that, 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 um, would be a way to look at it and maybe raise some questions of, uh, of, of why all those kind of in you know, the different countries, civil society groups yeah. had weighed in. I think that there's, yeah, there's. It, it's interesting to say at least that it's the United States is the epicenter of this discussion. Well,
0: well thank you for uh, joining <clears throat> us, Steve. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Steve Horn with the Real News Network, uh, following up following up on a PC Road recently about geoengineering. Uh, Steve, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Absolutely, thanks for having me.
0: All right, folks, when we come back from a short break, uh, Kathy Burns is going to join us. So we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to do our summer garden Q&A, including questions relevant to the derecho's impact on your vegetable garden, potentially, and also a whole bunch of questions about tomatoes. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design build services for high performance, no-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. They've been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yep, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecture by synthesis.
1: Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual.
0: Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon, your host here. A quick shout-out to a couple of our local business partners. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, my grocery store, and they do takeout for lunch and supper seven days a week. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis. With uh, 30 years of experience specializing in cutting-edge, creative, environmentally uh, friendly designs, including super insulated structures made from grain bins. Learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com All right, welcome to the program, Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm. You know, a lot of times this time of the year, people are starting to give up on their garden. You should not do that. Even if the weeds are getting ahead of you, even if the watering schedule has become tedious, even if derecho's have taken out your crops, don't give up. There's a lot of good reasons to stay involved with your garden. And we've got a lot of questions that have come in, one way or the other, that we'd like to attempt to answer a few of them.
1: Right. We follow a couple of online garden groups, and we learn a lot from the people on there. So thanks so much. We also try to add our bit that we've learned at Birds and Bees Urban Farm over the years. And speaking of learning, uh, I did notice somebody posted this question. They put a link up to a product that is a, a sheet of fabric of sorts that you could just order That is cut out with all the little seeds planted for you, and they roll it up, and they send it to you, and you just roll it out onto, I'm not sure what. Your living
0: living room floor?
1: I hope that it's a a very well-tilled and amended bed, but uh, it says says about this product, someone's question was, has anyone tried this? What do you think? We've not tried it, but... (laughs) I've never even heard of it. The promotion (laughs) says, um, no green thumb needed... And a customizable rollout garden, dispos- dissolvable pods, like laundry pods, this is on their website, contain a buffer of soil and organic non-GMO seeds. Um, so anyway, there's a whole promotion about this, talks about how it's made from recycled products, etc. and it, it makes your gardening a no-effort, no-experience-required experience required plot for you and plot might be the word ed what do you think of this
0: i think it's a i think it's a it's a it's a um a what i want to say a gardening form of snake oil cells uh i i can't see how anything like that is going to work i mean the whole notion why are we so afraid of work i mean you know i i i remember seeing I, i it was a it was a community garden i really respect the people what they're doing but I could not understand why they were obsessed with trying to avoid having to dig potatoes. They were, they, were, they were growing them in ways that were interesting, and maybe they worked, but they were denigrating the digging of potatoes as some horrible task. It's one of my favorite things to do. So I don't know what the deal is with work, but um, the shortcut to try to avoid it usually is a shortcut to a bad crop.
1: Right, And it says you can reuse this piece of fabric for the next year if you use it over a well-amended soil. So if you're going to amend your soil anyway, mm. just plant your seeds right in.
0: Maybe I'm old-fashioned. I just don't think it's going to work. But I'd, I'd be really intrigued. If anybody does try that and has had an interesting experience one way or the other, I'd love to hear back.
1: Yeah. Speaking of experience, it won't be too long. On our Birds and Bees Urban Farm website, we'll be rolling out what's what we're going to be doing for our workshops for next year and we also have online consultation so a way to gain experience a way to grow a green thumb if you want a sixth digit on your finger and one of them is <laughs> green or something um, check out birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. soon we're going to have our fall work or our, our next year's workshops um, organized and rolled out and you'll be able to sign up and get some experience
0: so another question uh, that we came across was derecho and gardens Uh, Someone wrote, RIP, dear garden. It was nice to have known you. I just feel like tearing out what's left of my garden. Hope everyone is safe. I get it. You know, we got lucky here in the city. Um, uh, We we didn't get, we got a little bit of damage, but we
1: personally did.
0: We personally had some damage. There were other people who had more or less damage. but there are folks out in the country who, uh, and maybe in other cities as well, who's just just complete loss, uh, mm-hmm. and I get that. My heart goes out to you. But um, what do you think?
1: Well, uh, some some folks who said, "Hey, I'm just done with my garden now," and uh, they're they're despairing. Other people, and I was glad to see this, have come on to encourage them to, you know, give it some time. Don't just go in and tear it all out. That tomato plant, and we had one of these, that is bent all the way to the ground. The vine actually never snapped. And we were able to very gently set it right again, stake it up a little bit better. And the other one next to it that got pulled down, we, we, we were able to tie up a little bit. That better.
0: was a spring storm. Yeah. Um, that
1: Correct. was the derecho that did this. Well, The corn. No, the tomatoes. Oh, tomatoes. The green zebra tomatoes. Oh, yeah, yeah, that one, right?
0: I forgot about that one. We had so many,
1: so many, well, (laughs) this this is the lesson. I forgot about that one. So many times you have a storm come through and something goes a little bit down or a little bit flat, and maybe it can be righted, um, and maybe not, but, you know, just just give it a little time, don't despair, Uh, and also, if you do feel that this season's crop is a bust, you might still be able to um, amend that soil in good time to get a little bit of fall planting in. So look into some of our earlier segments because we talk about fall planting and you may still be able to do that. Yeah, okay. We have some questions about... Uh, oops, I'm on the wrong page. You, I was going to say using and preserving... Pl- oh, here we go. Tomato questions. Tomato questions. We've got a couple of interesting ones. Um, I saw two posts. People posted... One was a picture of a, a what looked to me like a beautiful, ripe uh, paste tomato with one little crack at the top, and another post was a plate full of, uh, I think they called it a big boy tomato or something like big beef tomato, cut in half, and um, they were asking, what's wrong with these? Can I eat them? So the person with the big beef tomato just said, it seems that the gel part is a little darker yellow or darker colored than I've seen it, and the green part in the middle looks different than I remember. And they were asking, "Can I still eat this fruit?"
0: Yeah, that's um, that's an improvement. <laughs> if you're used to getting, uh, uh, you know, tomatoes at a lot of the big box uh, stores, the grocery stores, the chains, you know, those are those are picked green. Um, some of them are gassed. actually gassed in order to get them to turn red. And, you know, you're never gonna get the same flavor and texture and you may be used to um, less flavor, you may be used to an inferior texture, but if, you know, what you're getting from the garden is not gonna be the same, it's gonna be a lot better. And so, um, you know, I I think it's really cool that so many people are getting into growing their own food. Um, And I, you know, with, with, with any new venture comes, you know, a lot of pain in growing. Uh, so to speak, and so um, and, it, and it and it comes with unfamiliar turf, mm-hmm. and so you know I, I think if you're seeing you know things turn out a little different, maybe they're smaller than what you see in the grocery store, but uh, my my guess is they probably have better flavor, and uh, yeah there are there are tomatoes you you may get a tomato with a blossom and rot, you actually you can cut that part off and mm-hmm. still eat it, but mm-hmm. that that kind of um it kind of turns people off, but you know just get used to cutting off those bad spots or if it's a little crack and even a bad spot, just go right through it. Right,
1: (laughs) right. Um, And also people are asking what works best for tomato cages or string tie-ups. I know that we have some good ones. You want to describe our tomato cages?
0: Well, the, the best tomato cage, in my opinion, is when you make yourself from uh, it was, it's called cattle panel or whatever. It's, uh-huh. a, it's the uh, six-inch square uh, you know, metal wire cages. Uh, you, well, It comes out in a big sheet, but we make those into, um, into cages that are a, a foot and a half maybe in diameter, uh, and those work better than any of those little cages you'll buy in the store. Even the big little cages you'll buy in the store don't work as well as these. Tomatoes need a bunch of room to grow. They also need some direction. They, they can't just go every which way because they're a vine. They want to they wanna take off. Get them to take off in a direction where you can harvest your crop. And, again, the more... I once saw a, a, a photograph of a guy who grew a 30-foot tall tomato on the south side of his barn. Um, okay. How did maybe, he pick maybe, it? Well, he had a 40-foot ladder four, that he would go up to, to harvest fruit. A cherry picker? No, he had a ladder. Oh, <laughs> he used gosh. a ladder. And, uh, and he, he nitrogened the dickens out of that tomato plant. I mean it had a lot had a lot of sun, had good water, had great feed, and it just took off. You know, but they will get to be I mean we have some that are probably twelve feet tall. Yep. yep. Maybe maybe 13, 14 feet tall. Uh, they aren't that tall because they once they get to the top or... of the cage they droop and they go. Yeah. But so yeah, you want a nice big cage. Don't I do. don't skimp on cages. Yep. So Hey, so one more question, Kathy, for you. Uh, preserving this is the season when you like to preserve stuff and a lot of people are asking for tips on ways to use zucchini, tomatoes, eggplant. Okay. Yeah. Um
1: Zucchini and eggplant have some similarities in, in really good, easy use. You can just grate it or chop it super fine and use it as a base for your pasta sauces. I, you just start to saute it in your pan. Add your tomato sauce and your well. Add the, your onions and peppers and your seasonings. Add your tomato sauce. They give it almost a meaty feel and flavor. If you're not eating meat in your diet and you want to add something that feels a little meaty to it, just gives it some good veggies too and some extra nutrient um, for zucchini to preserve. If you're if you've got a, a ton right now, just shred it, put it in a bag that you're going to use four or five times, and freeze it. That's it. Yeah, and, and oh, and tomatoes. You can also
0: just slice them up and uh, and, and grill them. Yep, they're yeah. or or sauteed. Yeah,
1: for tomatoes, roast them with some garlic and olive oil and freeze them. That's it.
0: Tomatoes, uh, cherry tomatoes, cherry tomatoes. most, yeah, yeah, okay. most yeah. specifically cherry yeah. tomatoes. Yep.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, that, and that makes a super uh, base for a flatbread or a pizza. And you can use, all. some people say, oh, I, all I have is cherry tomatoes coming out of my ears. Well, <laughs> put them on a pan in the oven with a little and drizzle of olive oil, salt, pepper, a couple of cloves of garlic, and 400, 450 degrees till they're gooey.
0: And we have, uh, we have about eight tomato plants that really produce. And we've, um, we've been making, we've already had, uh, canned, I think, what, 20 quarts of sauce or marinara. Mm. And that takes a long time. It uh, does. We have a two-gallon pot we fill with tomatoes that... Reduces to about a gallon. It makes about four quarts of sauce or marinara, and um, yeah, it's, it's it's work. I mean, you got to be around. You can't just you know put it on the stove and be gone for ten hours. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, what about eggplant?
1: Uh, the egg, well, in addition to being able to chop it fine and use it as a base for your pasta sauce, same as zucchini, you can also uh, make eggplant parmesan. Mm. And put it, in, you know, then take it out of the pan after it cools, wrap it in some foil, put it in your freezer, and then you don't have to cook some winter night. You can just pull that out in the morning, thaw it, take it out of the foil, thaw it in the pan, and have yeah. it for your supper.
0: All right. Well, that's the tip of the iceberg. But bottom line is, folks, don't give up. Fall plant immediately if you can, and don't worry about that derecho. Um, it did some damage, but you can keep uh, keep uh, hammering away. All right. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Uh, Thanks, Kathy, for joining us. Um, Thanks to our production squad, which includes Kathy and Sherry Herdina. Uh, Thanks to the stations around the country that rebroadcast this program. Thanks to you, our audience. Check us out on the Fallon Forum website or on Stitcher or uh, Apple Podcasts. This is Ed Fallon, your host. See you next week.